It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome, guys. I'm your host, Brian Preston. And um, it's been a really unique month, is all I can say. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Now, maybe first to give you a clue, I'll tell you the working capital I had for today's show. Did I say working capital? I've been hanging out with financial assets too much. The working title that I had for today's show was Warren Buffett and the Passing of a Few Good Men. And and what do I mean by that? Let let, let me go ahead and give you the background. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that have happened. I always get excited this time of year because this is when Warren Buffett releases the letters of shareholders with Berkshire Hathaway. But then... Even though that that was a big event that was going on, and I think most people who would be tuning in today would be like, he's going to do his annual Warren Buffett show. Well, we've had something special that's happened, and the fact, and it's not a good thing, is that unfortunately Dr. Thomas Stanley passed away, and everybody knows what impact The Millionaire Next Door had on my life. And Bo, I've, you, you, you can recall, when you started working here, I make pretty much everybody read that book. I've given that a copy of that book to everybody and said, you need Absolutely. to go read the, the Wealthy Barber, and then you need to go read The Millionaire Next Door so you can get in the right mindset to understand really what wealth is and what people who have wealth, how they truly behave, so that you can take out those all those preconceived notions that you have about what wealth is. It gives you a better understanding. Well, unfortunately, Dr. Stanley was in a car accident, and it, and it tragically took him you know, probably well before his time. And, and, and that, so that, that's had an impact on me. And then... Um, it's it's interesting. Over the last month, I haven't talked about it to my podcast listeners. Everybody here at the office knows it, but my father-in-law had um, just a, a routine surgery. He had a, a surgery because he plays golf. He's an active man, and he was trying to get rotator cuff surgery. Um, but there were some complications, and he was in the hospital for the last month. And unfortunately, he passed away, um, you know, Less than a well, it was, it, was, it was a week and a half ago. So I, you know, it made this show, and that's why the working capital was Warren Buffett and the passing of a few good men, is because I was going to do a show where I was going to first talk about Dr. Stanley and try to pay some type of tribute to what he's meant for my life, and then I was going to talk to you about. I've told you how life impacts me, and that's what drives a lot of these shows. I was going to explain how I have firsthand seen how if you don't have healthcare directives and living wills you know, what that can mean for you and your family, since I've now got firsthand knowledge of that. And then I was going to hopefully transition to the Warren Buffett letter to shareholders. Well, here's the problem. I got through doing the show notes on the the Dr. Stanley tribute. I got through the show notes on, um, you know, dealing with my father-in-law and, you know, and how you turn the loss of a loved one into fuel for motivating you to do big things. And then I started reading the letters to shareholders to prepare, and I realized, well, you know, this is the 50th anniversary of the letters to shareholders. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have done a completely unique thing, is that they've both independently written letters to their shareholders. And if you've, you know, and what's interesting to me is that if you read these letters to shareholders, if you have a history of reading them, Warren gives you little nuggets about his history, things he recalled when he first started doing this in the 60s um, with Berkshire Hathaway. But now, if you read this year's, it's kind of the Cliff Notes version of all the years. So you can see the the insights he's tried to pick up over the last 50 years. So I've realized we need to do two shows. 
We're going to do the tribute to Dr. Stanley today. We're also going to talk about the things I've learned from the passing of my father-in-law. And then in two weeks, we're going to do the right job that we should do with the, the what you guys expect out there in the tightwad nation and the money guy listeners. We're going to do the, the, the letters of shareholders with Warren Buffett. So just to give you a heads up, um, you're also probably noticing when Bo talks, Bo, if you want to say hello to everybody. I'm, I'm right here just chugging chugging right along. Bo's not in the office with me, as you can tell. He's actually calling in. And I think it's – Bo, I still think you sound good, but you're not in the office. Well, and, thank you so much. <laughs> and I think it's interesting, um, just so our listeners know, it's going to be like this for this episode and then probably for next episode too because we've had some – we've looked at our calendars. There's just, just a bunch of stuff going on. Bo, you are officially now in the house. That's correct, right? We are in the house, so we are officially new homeowners. We got the downstairs unpacked. Haven't got the upstairs unpacked yet, but it's sort of a work in progress. And you'll be happy to know I got the crib put together last night all of myself. So things are kind of coming coming together uh, very nicely. Is it OSHA or whatever compliant these cribs have to be these days? Because it seems like they change the rules on that stuff every two or three years. Where I know the crib, I think both of my daughters were in are now outlawed. And um, is yours one of the approved cribs, or is this some pass-me-down that you saved a bunch of bucks on? No, well, I did save a bunch of bucks on it, but it is a brand-new crib, so I'm going to assume that it is up to all the most uh, most recent safety standards and regulations. That's good, good. At least that's what I'm telling myself so I can sleep at night. <laughs> and your kids are probably going to come out naturally athletic, so you know any any problems that you could have with the design or construction of the, the crib – your 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 physical specimen of a child will be able to overcome it anyway. Um, just for just so our listeners, if you're listening to this the first time, you're going, wait a minute, how this how does this podcast have so many five star ratings? This is the Money Guy Show, and we're gonna believe me, we're gonna go really deep into trying to help you make the best financial decisions you can with your personal finances. We've been doing this since 2006, if you can believe it. That makes us the grandfathers of this whole podcast movement. And we just appreciate all of you guys, how much you've supported us. Um, It's interesting. I got an attaboy email from a listener just last week that had written me What's funny is when I went to to write a thank you email back, when I did a, a search through my email database, it actually... They had sent me an email a month after we started this show in 2006. So I know a lot of you guys have been there from the beginning, and I want you to know how much we appreciate it. If you want to go check it out, you can go to money-guy.com. Also, you know, on the website, you can find out all the other different ways you can connect with us, whether it's Twitter. By the way, we're really close to getting to a 1,000 Twitter followers, and that's pretty cool because we've only really been doing Twitter for, what, now a year, a little over a year? Basically not, not a year. even a year. Because it was think, FinCon yeah. that made us realize we need to catch up to the 21st century. So, um Thank you guys, you know, and you know it's harder to get those followers when you're adapting and adopting things later than than some of the others. I also think it's interesting. I had Gabe tell me to make sure we tell everybody we're out there on iHeartRadio because we have a number of listeners who are catching us through their cars or through their iHeartRadio app. So thank you for following up on that. But um, let's kind of jump in. Carol, if you don't mind, because I didn't do it, can you go grab the Millionaire Next Door book for me? Because I did have some notations I had made in the book, but I think I left it in the office. But um, I wanted to kind of jump in and talk about Dr. Stanley. Um, one of the things that this book, you have to realize, it was on a path with me to a degree because that book was published in 1996. And the reason 1996 is such a powerful year for me is that that's the year I graduated from the University of Georgia. And I can still remember, 
you know, coming out in the mid-90s, remember this was the, the booming 90s where um, the market was doing really well. And, you know, I'm out there trying to make my way into the world of finance. I started out in public accounting. So in 1996, I was fully engulfed in probably studying for the CPA exam and, you know, trying to understand and look and live like a, a public accountant does. And I remember it was during either Thanksgiving or Christmas. And the reason I know that is because I was, it was the holidays and my bunch of my buddies that I grew up with, we were all home because they were still, they were doing their fi- their fifth or I should say their second senior year, because they were all five-year students. <laughs> I was a four-year student, fortunately, for, for my parents. But my friends were all doing the second senior year, so they were all home from the break, you know, for, for Thanksgiving or Christmas. I just can't remember which one it was. And we, um, back then, and youngsters probably don't remember this, there used to be these things called bookstores, you know, like Books A Million or Barnes & Noble and things like that, where you would go you know, around the mall or someplace to look at books. And I already had this aspiration to get into finance, the world of finance at some point. And I know it was during those holidays that I picked up The Millionaire Next Door. I read it and I it, it, I think it changed. You watch all these superhero movies where they get, you know, radiation or gamma or something. And it changes their DNA because of what, the, you know, something they've been exposed to. I was exposed to The Millionaire Next Door at such a young age right out of college that it changed my financial DNA. I kid you not, it really did shape me in a way that, that, that impacted me. And I think it had that impact on a lot of people because there were two columns that um, I had a listener send me out and then I also had somebody who was a little closer to, to the Dr. Stanley's family who had sent me the, a tribute that they were happy with, but... Um, the the one that I was told was very favorable. Well, they're both favorable. Everybody is a fan of The Millionaire Next Door, but there was one that was more of a favorite, I, I think, with the way it was laid out. And it was um, the one done by Michelle Singletary from The Washington Post. She wrote this on March the 7th, and it was titled, Remembering Thomas J. Stanley, Who Redefined What It Meant to Be Rich. And then I had a podcast, friend of the podcast show, or the Money Guy show, who had sent me... Um, the the New York Times art, um, column called from Ron Lieber, who was paying tribute to Thomas Stanley and his millionaire next door. And I, I thought it was, they both did a really good job. Um, I guess the only one about Ron's piece that bothered me a little bit is that it, it did at the end talk about that, unfortunately, Dr. Stanley was in an auto accident and he was in a 2013 Corvette. And, and the and the Ron had kind of poked fun that he wondered if Dr. Stanley was a hypocrite for having, and, and what that showed me was that Ron had not read Dr. Stanley's new book, the most recent book that he'd written back in 2009 that was called Stop Acting Rich, and you know, it was, it was the book that kind of laid out the actual behavior from his research, and people need to realize just because you buy something, I've told y'all I bought that Jeep and it has been one of the best purchases I ever made. There is nothing wrong with spending money as long as you have enough money in the bank that you're not acting or faking your success. And if we all go back and read The Millionaire Next Door and, and look at those, those well-worn pages, you'll remember that there's a great equation in there that will let you know if you're accumulating wealth efficiently. And that formula, and remember, it really only works for people over 35 and greater, I think. So if you're in your 20s and you do this formula and it's not great, don't worry about it. You will hit it at some point. But if you take your income, multiply it by your age, and then multiply that by 10%, 
And then you compare that to your net worth, that will tell you if you're accumulating more assets, if you're a builder of wealth, or if you're under that curve. And Bo, we've talked about this a number of times, and I think that's why we came up with, was it 30 or 35? Do you recall from our discussions? I think it was 35 is where we felt like it started making the most sense. Because I know when, um, you know, but if you're 40 years old, that formula should hit you pretty good. If you're 50 years old, it definitely should be hitting you, and it will let you know how good you've been saving. What I wanted to do was I wanted to read just the first part of what um, Michelle Singletary wrote, because I'll be honest, it sounded very similar to what Ron had written in his New York Times piece, but I, but, cause, but I thought it laid it out nicely, and that I want to go through those seven principles, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on them because I want to make sure we talk um, about what happened with my father-in-law and the healthcare directives, but I want to talk about the sec- seven factors of the, of the wealthy. But here's what Michelle wrote. She said, so in F. Scott Fitzgerald's short story, The Rich Boy, he writes, let me tell you about the very rich. They are different from you and me. Fitzgerald's literary characterization of the rich has defined for many what it means to be wealthy. People envision lives full of extravagant things. And, and that's true. If you think about it, I grew up with Robin Leach telling you about the yeah, lifestyles of the rich and famous. And famous. Yeah. If I could do a cool accent of whatever he's from, I would do it. Bo, do you do an accent of, of Robin Leach? No, not even close. You're not going to try it for us to entertain everybody who's listening? No, absolutely not. Okay, you're not taking the bait. That's okay. Well, Anyway, Michelle continues on. She says, but two academics in an extraordinary book published 19 years ago surprised us with findings about regular people, regular rich people, I should say. We have discovered who the wealthy really are and who they are not. Thomas Stanley and William Danko wrote in The Millionaire Next Door, The Surprising Secrets of America's Wealthy. And, and I think that's a great transition point to, I want to read right from the book. I went to page three. So this is, if you buy this book, and if you have not read this book, guys, go buy it. I mean, truthfully, if you want to pay tribute to Dr. Stanley and you think a lot of what the money guys show and in the passing, you've never read The Millionaire Next Door, go check it out. Go on Amazon. I don't think you will be, I know you won't be disappointed whatsoever. Um, and I get nothing for telling you that. So I don't want you to think there's something that's driving that, that, that statement. But here's what's in the book. If you turn to page three under the seven factors of who becomes wealthy, it says this. It says, who becomes wealthy? Usually the wealthy individual is a businessman who has lived in the same town for all of his adult life. This person owns a small factory, a chain of stores, or a service company. He was married once and remains married. He lives next door to people with a fraction of his wealth. He is is a compulsive saver and investor, and he has made his money on his own. 80% of America's millionaires are first-generation rich. Bam, that blows up everything because I knew I grew up in a household. I've told you guys many times, I grew up in a household where my father told me that most people who are wealthy have come up with some scheme or found, and believe me, I love my dad. He was actually a great, great man, but he had never been around wealth to understand really what generates it. So when I saw that, I can remember still in my 20s saying, 80% of America's millionaires are first generation. Wait a minute. That might mean I have a shot at this thing. So I continued on. Affluent people typically follow a lifestyle conducive to accumulating money. In the course of our investigations, we discovered seven common denominators among those who successfully build wealth. Number one, they live well below their means. Number two, they allocate their time, energy, and money efficiently in ways conducive to building wealth. Number three, 
They believe that financial independence is more important than displaying high social status. Number four, their parents did not provide economic outpatient care. Number five, their adult children are economically self-sufficient. Number six, they are proficient in targeting market marketing market opportunities. Why am I having trouble with that? I'll read that one again just because I might have screwed it up. Six, they are proficient in targeting market opportunities, meaning they know how to make money. They see opportunities within the market. And then number seven, they chose the right occupation. That should send a, a shutter down any parent who's about to send their kid to college. Make sure they chose the right occupation. I mean, it is that simple. And the whole book goes much deeper into every one of those seven concepts. And it, it's something that I just think that will change your life if you look at it. Bo, do you have any thoughts you want to give on Dr. Thomas Stanley? The, the thing that I think is so amazing about, about that book and even his later books is they're so timeless. Even though it was written in 1996, you know, it's been updated since then, it's amazing how pertinent the things he was writing there uh, in a completely different economic environment. You know, this is pre-iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, the whole nine. Uh, it's still so pertinent and still translates today, and I think it will for, for years and years and years to come. I was shocked that... Um If you go out to Wikipedia, you know, everything that's something has a Wikipedia, it seems like. And and it has down there, it had, I can't remember how it was worded on the Wikipedia, but it was critics or, you know, people who who disagreed with Dr. Stanley's writings. And um, the only thing they could, they they drew light to was the fact that this occurred during the mid-90s, which was considered one of the biggest bull markets of our lifetimes, but I'll tell you, I think that's very biased because if you read those seven things that I just went through, and you talk about small business owner, you know, entrepreneurship, or people who just live very well and lower than their means, I don't see how that means anything. It just seems like somebody who's just trying to rain on a parade to me. But um, I, I yeah, thought that was I interesting agree. when I was looking at it. So I had somebody who's who had talked to me who knew that, um, you know. We had Dr. Stan- Dr. Thomas Stanley pass away, and then I had my father-in-law recently pass away. I told you about a week and a half ago, and they knew that I've talked about it often, that one of the driving factors for me, when did I decide I was going to be self-employed, was after my own father passed away back at the end of 2000. My father passed away in December of 2000, and it was one of those things where it changed my life. I mean, I, I just and I want, and somebody said, well, you know, you were you were very successful. And taking such a traumatic thing, losing your father when you're 26 years of age, how did you take that negative event and turn it into a positive? Because I knew that 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 was kind of the inspiration for what led me to become an entrepreneur and start my own business. So the question was actually written, how do you turn loss into motivational fuel? Well, I, I thought about it because it's one of those things that I've talked about on this podcast, but I think it's worth mentioning. There's really four things that I wrote down that I think will help people realize how you can turn a negative thing that happens in your life, turn a loss into that motivational fuel. And the first thing I wrote was the clarity of darkness. Now, when I'm talking about the clarity of darkness, what I mean by is when you go through a dark period of your life, meaning maybe you lost a loved one, maybe you've lost your job, you know, it's some type of dark blemish that has occurred that you weren't counting on happens in your life, you know, you can either wallow in that darkness or you can get some clarity from that darkness. And when I talk about clarity, I'm talking about the two things that hit me 
was that after I lost my father, it seems like all the noise and the distractions of life just fell away, meaning that it was... I didn't get caught up in all the things like, you know, you th- you think you you'd want to do something because you want to make lots of money. You think you want to do something because it will bring you this attention. Well, then you go through a traumatic event and you realize all that stuff doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean that much. What really means a lot to me, and, and that's what that's the next point I was going to make, is you realize very quickly what is truly important to you. And I can remember after I lost my father... I realized I was leaving the house at 6 in the morning, and then I was getting home close to 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night. And my wife and I at the time, we were married, but we didn't have any kids. I was like, the only things that provide me comfort that my father has been taken from me way too soon was he was at every one of my play practices. He was at every one of my tennis matches. He was at every one of my, my basketball games. I mean, it was all the things that he was able to attend and all the things we were able to do in life together that made me feel okay with the transition. So then I looked and I projected that on my life, and I was like, I'm not going to be around to see anything because I'm going to be leaving the house before 6, coming home at 8, and even if I have kids, they're not going to know who the heck I am. I'm the guy that pays the bills and shows up on the weekends. So I had the clarity of, the, of, the clarity of darkness to realize what was important to me was I had to change my life so that I could be there for my family that I might have in the future. And that leads to the next point. You have to visualize what you desire or dream. And I visualized at that point, I was like, I got to figure out how I can do what I love, but not work so daggum much. And that's when I started immediately putting together a plan for how could I start my own company. And and that's why I tell you that clarity of darkness will then lead you to start daydreaming or visualizing what it is that you desire or dream. And then you can take that. The third thing I wrote down was you have to craft the big picture plan. You have to start putting together what are the big steps that have to occur. For me, it was I had to leave my good paying job, but I I wasn't going to make anything happen unless I made a transition to going out on my own. So you have to craft that big picture plan. And then the final step I had was you have to do the baby steps of actually implementing, you know, do the things, figure out what those steps are on maybe a one-year basis, what you need to do next month, what you need to do over the next six months, and take those baby steps. And then I put one little final thing here on me is after you do the baby steps and you do this, don't look down and don't look back. And what I mean by that is, is that you have to understand when you do some of these big things that are changing your life, it's going to scare the heebie-jeebies out of you. It's no different than if you're climbing up a big, tall ladder to get to a really good place. Probably the worst thing you do is look down. You know you where you want to go. You know where you want to be, but you don't want to look down because you're going to scare yourself, and that's not that fear is going to do nothing but hurt you. Um, so you don't want to look down, and you don't want to look back, but you do want to go make sure, and I, maybe, Bo, you're probably going to pick on me if I didn't emphasize this, plan, plan, plan. That's why I had step number three was craft the big picture plan. You want to give yourself a chance to have success, but you've got to be prepared to take that risk if you're really going to do some life-changing stuff. And that probably goes back to our show we did, was it the end of the last year or first of this year, Bo, where we did vision planning? If you haven't listened to that show, go check out our archives because we have all of our shows all the way back to 2006 and that our vision planning one ties into some of this to a big degree because I talk about jumping into an entrepreneur type endeavor. And, and those are the big things when I had that person ask me, how do you turn a loss into motivational fuel? Those are the four things that just kind of fell out on the sheet of paper is that you do get some clarity 
even in the darkest of times. I'll give you one that impacts all of us as a country. I can remember after September 11th of 2001, um, we had that terrorist attack, and it was one of those things also, after that big terrorist attack, there was about a week to two weeks that you saw in Washington, you know, as Republicans and Democrats were singing on the, the steps of the, the, the Capitol, you know, as, as a united front. And, and it ties back into that, vi- that clarity of darkness is that I think all of us in this country realized we're all together on this stuff. And that's what I'm saying. The, the noise, the, the bickering, the, all the little stuff seems to fall away when you have the clarity of darkness and, and you want to do what's right for you and your family and so forth. And that's that's why I tell you, some of those emotional things can be some of the greatest learning things. Bo, you know, and I know I'm going a little off topic with this, but, you know, in 2008, when you came on and we started working together, when we were going through that traumatic event that occurred all the way from September, October through really March of 2009, I told you to bottle up how you feel now because it will be priceless to you as a, as a money manager for years because you'll understand what's going on with your emotions when you hit Absolutely. these type of situations again. So I didn't mean to go on the sidebar with that, but um, I, kind of the, the third thing I wanted to kind of close the show out with was talking about my father-in-law. You know, it was really... I don't know. It was we were not counting on when he he did this elective procedure that we were never going to have him back the way he was. I mean, and that's that's a scary thing. And what I if I guess there's several things I'm about to give you the financial advice, but I could, if I could give you just some life advice that I've realized is that I think once you're over seventy, you need to be very careful about elective procedures because I, I've talked to a lot of my doctor friends and people in the medical field since this has all occurred. And they do tell you one of the things you have to be very careful about once you get to a, an older age is your body just heals differently. It, you know, even though you can be completely active. And my father-in-law, the reason we feel like he was taken, you know, earlier than he should have, even though number of years wise he was, eight, you know, eighty-one years old, that seems old. I heard, you know, Leonard Nimoy passed away recently, and, and I heard all the news reports were talking about he, he had a, a, you know, a long life. And a very prosperous life, and eighty-three was, you know, a good life, and and that is true. So when I think about my father-in-law being eighty-one, you hear that number, and you're like, wow, I hope I make it to eighty-one. But then you see how much life he had, where the man was riding back on Thanksgiving. We went to Dollywood for the first time, and he was riding roller coasters, roller coasters that I had my eyes closed the entire time and swore I'd never be on it again, and he's asking to go on it again. A guy who's playing golf still three or four times a month. I mean, this is a good life and a lot of energy, a lot of, you know, really life and love of of just living the, the, the dream that he has. And, and it disappeared because of this complication. So I have realized that if you're over 70, don't take for granted because your body heals differently than it did when you're 30, 40, even 50 years old, because you have to be careful of, of what could happen. But um, I thought it was interesting is that medical science, is as incredible as medical science is, it can get you to a fork in the road of life that's very gray. And what I mean by that is, is that after these complications started happening, you know, I know I've had, I have healthcare directives and a living will on myself. And, and just kind of to bring you guys up to speed to give you the definition, the healthcare directives, you, well, there's several things. You, you're going to have a, a, you're going to put in charge somebody that you want 
to be kind of your power of attorney for healthcare decisions. Um, and that's going to probably be a spouse or a loved one that you just trust with your life, literally that you're trusting with your life, um, to make those decisions if you're not able to make those decisions. But then on top of that, you can have a living will which will then say what you do and don't want done to you. And I can get into the details a little bit more. We're talking about really the feeding tubes. We're talking about breathing for you. There's all kinds of things that can be done for you medically to keep you alive. Well, if you create these documents, it will give your loved ones a lot of clarity and guidance, even when you don't have a voice any longer. And unfortunately, my father-in-law at the because of some of the complications, um, there were some strokes and some other things that occurred that he, he was just not the same person. But we gotten to the point where they could have had machines that would just keep things going a little bit longer. And w- we were at that process, but then my mother-in-law went and pulled the living will, went through and read the living will, and it gave very good clarity that we probably had already gone a little further than what my father-in-law would have even wanted. So we, we kind of made the decision then, and we knew he'd never had the quality of life that he was going to have. And truthfully, after seeing how it, we, I was there when he passed, my whole family was, I don't think he would have lasted much longer anyway, just based upon how weak his body had become. But there is some peace that comes from knowing that this was his will, his wishes, to be treated in this special way. And I got to tell you, I think for my mother-in-law, just seeing that document gave her peace to be able to make some of those decisions too because you you know with loved ones there's going to be differing opinions at least if you have the actual words of the person you know and I'll tell you I've learned I had these healthcare directors but I'm much much more knowledgeable on them now and the fact that I'll share with you my wife my wife and I talked about it as right as we were in the, this middle of this month-long ordeal where she was going to the hospital every day, and everybody around the office knows I've been disappearing in and out to cover kids and do all kind of other things while she's going back and forth to the hospital. So it really led to some heavy discussions for us, And I, but I think it were better for it, is that I have realized that there's – and this is what's great about living wills also. I think it's not a – it doesn't have to be a zero or one or a binary transaction, meaning that if like a feeding tube or even the breathing, breathing apparatus they can put in your throat to keep you on a ventilator, um, these things don't have to be, like I said, a zero, a yes or a no. Um, it can be – you can put the time frame – that you want these type in your living will. When I was reading the Mayo Clinics, and we're going to give a link to um, the the Mayo Clinic has kind of an overview of these decisions and really gets down into the the nitty gritty of what you need to decide. And it will explain to you that you can have a length of time. It's just like I was explaining to my wife. I think there's nothing wrong with putting me on a ventilator for a week or a week and a half if it looks like my prognosis is that I might be able to recover from this. I don't want you to take me out just because I've told you I don't want a ventilator if there, if I could be on that ventilator for 10 days and it might bring me back to life. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with that. So I would probably want to have a two-week, and there's also some science to that, that they don't want to keep you on that ventilator for more than two weeks anyway just because your body starts degrading and it couldn't handle it. But you can put time frames in there. Same thing about a feeding tube. You know, nobody, A lot of people would think I don't want a feeding tube, but you might want a feeding tube for a little bit of time just to give your body a chance to, to get nourishment, to heal itself. If you had you know pneumonia or something that was causing you trouble um, with your lungs and elsewhere, you might need some of that support. But that's, these are discussions, and believe me, I, you know, I, 
that's why it was so hard for me with the passing of Dr. Thomas Stanley. I mean, only two or three days before my father-in-law passed away, it just, I was like, I, you know, it's just crazy. Um, I'm not even going to make, I guess I could make a, a Star Trek joke because, you know, things happen in threes and I feel like I've lost three people that have definitely had an impact on my life. You know, and I know that, that sounds hokey, but it's, it's kind of true if you, if you added a Leonard Nimoy in there too. But, um, Boat is, I mean, I could get more into the nitty gritty and the, and, and the details. I mean, do, do you think, because I have terminology, I have details. Would you add anything else about the healthcare directives? Yeah, you know, I, I just have, have a question. You know, when, as listeners are kind of hearing this and thinking through this, you know, obviously um, this is a conversation that spouses have. Um, and generally they have it um, so that they can take pressure off of the surviving spouse. I think when, when we've seen this in the past, that's where the greatest value has been garnered. And it's, it's just like you said, your mother-in-law felt peace knowing that this was your father-in-law's wishes. Um, it, it, is there an appropriate time or how might you approach this um, if you just, if you're talking with your elderly parent? Because um, obviously these are very difficult conversations. These are very uncomfortable conversations. But do you think it's something that as our parents age, um, it's a conversation we might want to have with them to make sure that they, they do have those types of documents in place. Well, I would definitely want to ask your parents if they have if they've thought about these things. I will. I'll tell you if it's like my family. I mean, what's I'm not trying to make fun, but sometimes laughter does help in in dark situations. You know, my mom know my mother knows that I'm going through all this stuff with my father in law, and just coincidentally, she lets me know that her and her new husband. They just had a planning session, you know, and she's like, I've got my burial all figured out, son. I'm like, Mom, I, the last thing I want to hear is that you have your 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 final arrangements. All You have to know my mother to know that she totally would do this right while we're going through all this stuff. But she, I kid you not, it happened. So a lot of parents are going to naturally start sharing some of this stuff just because I think that it's on their mind. I mean, I think once you get 50, sure. 60, and even 70 years of age, your mortality is definitely front and center. You've heard me how many times in the last two years, how I've been talking about since I turned 40, I am much more sentimental than I've ever been. And why is that? It's not because I think I'm going to die tomorrow or even the next year or 10 years, but I do recognize that oh, being over 40, your mortality is something you more understand because I'm middle-aged now. So, it's, so, so sure. I think that that conversation, I don't want you, I would encourage anybody, don't look like you're, you're you know, make it a very positive thing where you're coming from a position of love and concern, um, you know, because it is a touchy thing talking to to family members, especially if somebody's in denial. Um, but ask the question. I think that's the biggest thing. Come from a position of love and then just ask if you find the appropriate time and maybe, you know, use a show like this or, or do something, you know, there's there can be a catalyst for the discussion to where it doesn't have to be awkward. You can just, you know, share the story of, you know, my father-in-law who was just going for a procedure he considered routine, an outpatient service type thing, and then um, he never recovered from it. I mean, that, and you, sure. you, you could. There's celebrities. Joan Rivers had, um, I think, she had an elective cosmetic, you know, cos- cosmetic surgery, and she had things. And what's interesting, you have, you know, Misery Loves Company. Just the sheer fact that this happened, when you talk to friends or people in the community, I've had several other people talk to me about, you know, elective procedures that a loved one had and then just never came back. So it can happen. Um, you don't need to stick your head in the sand and think that it can't, but just, you know, 
be very positive with those conversations and come from that position of love. Sure. Um, any details I should go to? Because, I mean, you know this stuff too, Bo. I mean, I, I want to make sure I don't bore people with morbidity. I don't even know if that's a word. I just probably made that up. But with morbid conversation. But um, I, I do want to make sure y'all, – y'all go to the website, money-guy.com. Like I said, I'm going to link back to this Mayo Clinic thing and realize the reason I chose the Mayo Clinic – is it they have no motivation except for trying to get this advice out to people who who you know might be patients or needing this advice and we all know um, from a health standpoint I don't think there's anybody who has more of a gold standard reputation than the Mayo Clinic on on giving that type of information out there so that's why I chose them we're also going to give you a link if you go out to the website to those two columns on Dr Thomas Stanley and then um, like I told you guys earlier come back in two weeks. And we're going to be talking about one of the topics I know you guys love to hear us talk about. You'll know spring is in the air because we're talking about it. And that is the the, the annual Berkshire Hathaway letter to shareholders. Um, really, really it's exciting to me every year that this thing comes out. And um, I don't think Warren disappointed us this year. And I'm hoping to have you guys back in two weeks so that you can also hear these thoughts. And um, it'll be a fun thing. We'll, we'll share with that. Um, Bo, maybe you'll have some more stories you can share on your house or baby information or updates on that. Um, but absolutely, we'll, we'll be here in two weeks. Let me go ahead and give you some email addresses just in case you want to contact the show. You can contact me at Brian, B-R-I-N at money-guy.com. Or you can contact my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen at Bo, B-O at money-guy.com. And also, I guess I'll throw it out there. Thank you guys for reaching out to us. I, you know, I, I forgot to say it at the beginning of this show because I think I was distracted with all the life events, but we have been saying it on the last two or three shows that if you want to, if you like what you hear on the Money Guy show and you want to take it, the relationship that next step, we have been taking on podcast clients for a number of years now. That has allowed us to have clients in 26 states. We'd love to have you reach out to us. So just write us at one of those email addresses and Um, We'd love to continue that conversation with you. So I'm your host, Brian Preston. We'll talk to you in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.